Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This is going to be a topic quite a long way outside what we normally discuss on the show. It might get quite personal. It will also be pretty vague and philosophical. Now, whenever we do cover a topic like this, and in the past we've done shows on the philosophical implications of immortality and the psychology of conspiracy theories, I'd put this really in the same category. I always have to start with a few big caveats. First off is the acknowledgement that when I talk about things that are quite a way outside my area of expertise, I know that I am very limited in this. It's funny, I think people get education all wrong. A real education doesn't make you an arrogant, instant expert in everything, nor does it enable you to dismiss the expertise of others. It should make you very humble indeed. This world is so complex, so fascinating and multifaceted, and there are so many different ways of looking at it, that the best you can ever hope to do with even the most broad-ranging education is to outline the contours of your own ignorance. And when you have a field where you do gain some measure of expertise, the process of gaining that expertise should certainly show you just how much thought and knowledge exists out there, and how intensely and deeply one often has to specialise to contribute anything new or original, or say anything decisive on any particular problem that you're trying to work on. So for me, when it's an issue in physics or climate change, for example, I can have this visceral reaction, but I'm sure you will all have your own subjects like this, and maybe I blunder into them too often for your liking where whenever there's a discussion about it, someone will raise a really obvious point as if it's original or one that is the subject of decades of scholarship. And, you know, if I'm feeling grouchy, if I hadn't had my coffee yet, or if someone's being overly forthright, I want to say, you know, don't you think people have thought about this? Don't you know that there's a lot of scholarly work that exists to address precisely this question? And then whenever I talk about something that's outside the fields that I know well, which is too often, I blunder in without the years of research you'd need to really know what you're talking about, and listeners who are better educated than me will probably have the same reaction. Well, I know this, but unfortunately it still won't stop me from talking about these things. But I imagine there will be those of you there who are thinking about this more, or considered it in greater detail, or know the terminology and the objections and so on. For you and everyone else, I would beg indulgence, plead ignorance, and as ever, if you have different views, alternative ideas, I always love to hear about them from the audience, so please get in touch with us. With that said, then, we're going to be talking about the meaning of life, how and whether to short-circuit it, what I mean by short-circuiting it, and we're going to be talking about psychedelic drugs, religion, mortality, mental health, imagined futures, artificial intelligence, philosophy, and the point of it all. So that's clearly quite a lot to cover, so let's dive in. So there are a couple of ideas that I've read about which made me want to try and write this episode, which I encountered in very different places. The first is in that special field of artificial intelligence, but specifically the type of philosophical speculations that Nick Bostrom and others have had about superintelligent AI. You know, the uh, the science fiction hyperphilosophy stuff. Now, we covered this stuff back in the Teotwauki episode on AI, and it's come up a little bit in more recent times. Although I admit that my thinking about it all has evolved substantially since then, as I've thought about revisiting the topic on several different occasions. Because I think that specifically, a lot of this stuff is basically, for Bostrom and others, a way for them to play around with various philosophical ideas and fun thought experiments. For them, the idea of artificial intelligence, or superintelligence as it's sometimes called, is not really to do so much with any details of computer programming. Mostly because there's such a huge gap between machine learning as it exists today, both operationally and in terms of its capacity and how it's constructed, and the AIs that they're imagining. I tend to use the term machine learning to refer to the stuff that actually exists and the AI to use the stuff that's actually hypothetical. Um, I think that that is a a good way to go. But um, instead for them, it's a philosophical toy box that they would argue might be relevant eventually at some point in the future. And the idea that comes up a lot is how you might program superintelligent AI. So it's basically assumed that a superintelligent AI is going to have godlike powers, you know, it will have the ability to manipulate people, matter, energy, etc. Pretty much without end and without limits. Indeed, there are whole scenarios that people talk about. You'll find this in things like Max Tegsmark's book, Life 3.0, where they'll imagine that the programmers have tried to put the AI into a box and the AI is tricking them or sweet-talking them into releasing it. Uh, with various different, you know, uh, its ability to understand human psychology because it's so much more quote-unquote intelligent, whatever that means, that it's able to persuade you uh, to let it out of the box, whatever you do. And the point of this is that you have this 
incredibly powerful thing, this intellect or force that is far beyond our own comprehension, and that it can do whatever it wants. And then what they're trying to do is trying to game out the psychology of assuming that you could program such a being with its overall logical structure and imperative for existence. And the fear is that given that such an all-powerful being uh, might obey a logic very different to our own, that we might be able to not control it and end up destroyed by our own creation. And it, it is essentially, in some ways, I think that the, the problem is if you could tell God what moral system to have, if you could tell God what to do, what would you do? And be very careful with your words, because there's almost an assumption that because of misunderstandings and misinterpretations here, the system will play corrupt a wish with you. And we've all had these experiences with computers where they obey your command very literally. You know, if you go into your command prompt and type in a certain code that says it will destroy, you know, the, everything on the hard drive, it will erase that, it will obey that command. So you can sort of see that there's a, a mix of the old kind of corrupt wish fairy tales and the the experience of computers doing things that you literally told them to that weren't your actual intention. I think, by the way, that you can tell a lot about the psychology of a society by the apocalypses that it envisions and the horrors that it comes up with. You can see the subconscious fears, but also how those fears are framed. I remember reading an anecdote in David Graeber's book, Debt, and this is a bit of a tangent, where he talked about a tribal society that was very much focused on the debts that people owed to each other, and certain types of debt that couldn't be repaid were these flesh debts, which you would owe to people if you were in a sort of very uh, close kinship relationship with them, if I remember rightly. And the fears that people would have is that these unpaid debts would cause these uh, people, if they died, to reanimate and, and come back. And you can sort of see that the, the subconscious thing here is this uh, fear of the 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 bonds of flesh that uh, link these people together is continuing uh, even after death. And I think that in our society as well, in this apocalypse that we have envisioned, um, you can see that the dream is that we develop a type of technology, a sort of automated system, that does much of what our civilization does, but only vastly more effectively. You have to think about it like the idea that we've invented something that grows complex and beyond our control. And I feel like that is the sensation that the individual has in society. You know, technically, each of these things that uh, we exist in, whether it's the system of work, whether it's the system of education, whether it's the system of a, of a nation state and the government that you belong to, we know that we all construct these things and give them value uh, by our sort of consent that, uh, you know, this exists as a thing, this money has this certain value, this type of thing. And yet we feel like it's beyond not only our individual control, but also even beyond the control of the people who are supposed to be in charge. I mean, you see this in a sort of, I guess, a, a neoliberal approach to governance, where most of the ways that you want to approach government is to try and guide the invisible hand of the market. And the market becomes personified as a, as a force that is uh, almost natural and of nature that, that can't actually be tamed. Uh, and we can only hope to direct it in certain different directions. Even though technically, of course, all markets are just exchanges which are being carried out between, in most cases, humans. Very occasionally uh, on the financial markets, you'll have algorithms that are also controlled by humans. So this whole thing is it's a world that we continually are in the process of constructing. And there's this sort of terror that it that will get out of control. And particularly, I think the idea, it's often almost assumed as an inevitability, is that we're going to build this godlike AI. Sometimes writers on the topic will explicitly say that the reason this will happen is that there will be an arms race to build one, because the first person who builds a sentient AI would become insanely wealthy or have unlimited power, which is why they would be incentivized to compete to do it, and to cut safety corners also. So we have this idea as like people in society as kind of blindly trying to maximize their own power or maximize their own wealth, and that's why they produce the AI. And then when we build this godlike AI, which has unlimited power to observe, gather data, calculate, manipulate matter and material, it essentially monitors and influences the natural world and its inhabitants, which includes us. And then it tries to maximise some function, because this is how they view uh, morality in many ways, is this sort of naive utilitarian idea that the uh, moral philosophy or the moral precept that you would put into any system would be to say, 
maximize some function for me. You know, whether that's I've produced a wealth creating AI that says make me as wealthy as possible. Or if it's slightly less naive, you try and come up with some complicated expression for human happiness and then say maximize that. And then because you've already made these assumptions about how morality works, that everything is utilitarianism and you can distill everything down to a function like this that you can maximize, then the question that a lot of people worry about is almost limited to what if we put the wrong number in the function? And the toy examples that they use for this are like the fantasies that you might give the computer an incorrect goal, like calculating the digits of pi, say, only to watch it convert the entire universe into computers, endlessly and pointlessly calculating more and more digits of that transcendental number, which has no end. And so it's this world where the computer, you know, is self-obsessed with this single goal, uh, maniacally. It destroys everything and just calculates digits of pi. And, you know, you can see this as a metaphor for all sorts of things if you want to. I think people who pose this uh, as a thought experiment are saying, here's what happens if you pick a function that is misaligned with what you want, and then these unintended consequences follow. Um, you might want to see it as a metaphor for other systems and structures that we've put in place that try to maximise things that uh, we hope are actually valuable, um, whether that's the education system, whether that's the system of global finance, whatever you like. This is, of course, a way of framing the problem, but when the question you ask is, what if we put the wrong number in the function, you're already assuming implicitly a great deal about what the problem is going to be here. Why build the thing at all? Why assume it will take on some function maximizing form? But these questions don't really come up. It is just assumed that it is inevitable that humanity will build these systems that then become far too complex for us to manage or even understand, let alone hope to control, and that the incentives for them will end up being misaligned and it will produce all of this horror. And you can see in this fantasy, in this fear, the fears about our own society and how it's already evolved. In some specific technologies, algorithmic technologies that monitor and manipulate us and now behave in ways we don't understand and can't control, sure. I mean, who would have thought that Mark Zuckerberg's pervy photo harvesting experiment in college would end up controlling information dissemination to more than a billion people? But of course, the deeper fear is embodied in this myth, you know, that where we are afraid that we have already built systems that are far too complex for us to manage or understand or control with unintended consequences that will end up causing us harm or even destroying us. And to see these systems, look around you. Because of the innate technological determinism and almost accelerationism that comes out of a lot of this philosophy, you can hardly question whether we even have a choice to build this thing. The idea is simply taken for granted that it will be done and it is inevitable. You can not really question whether the whole process of just seeking to subjugate and dominate and grow and develop endlessly, for this is what is envisioned at the end of all of those exponential graphs of a vaguely defined progress on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, is maybe somehow misguided, or whether we should view progress as being something within limits, or whether constantly choosing to determine success by some narrow metric or set of narrow metrics is too simplistic and leaving out things that are really important and hard to pin down, quantify, uh, fungibly exchange, and universally set a value on. But in this, of course, I digress. Let's leave aside all of the crazy caveats for the moment about whether any of this is even remotely possible, let alone likely, and just consider it for what it is, which is the thought experiment, because that illustrates what we're driving at here. So in the thought experiment, one of the nightmares is that you imagine that you program this AI to try and maximise human happiness. But perhaps a dumb, superintelligent AI, doing what we fear computers often do, and interpreting the expression very literally, might choose a more narrow definition of human happiness. It won't surprise you to hear me say that this is an inevitable part of trying to distill something as complex and subtle and varied as happiness, or indeed the meaning of life, down to a series of quantifiable metrics. The process of doing this is inevitably going to leave out something vital. If you pick a particularly dumb metric, then your computer friends will probably just inject you with heroin and flood your brain with endorphins until you die. Happiness self-evidently maximised, if that's how you want to define it. Maybe, in other instantiations of this imperfect realisation, 
It simply chooses to simulate humans who are easier to please and don't require all of the things that we require to be happy as humans. You know, maybe you've seen it through that idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the bottom. You need food and water and shelter and then higher up you need emotional connection and then right at the top you need self-actualization and social standing and all of these more complicated things. You know, maybe the super intelligent AI is just like, let's let's engineer a simpler human, a simpler being uh, that is able to experience happiness, uh, that is much, much uh, simpler to simulate. There's this dark aspect of utilitarianism and its insistence that everything is fungible and equally interchangeable here. You know, If your utilitarian function decides that a person's life will, on balance, contain more sadness than happiness, then maybe it will decide if it is a net negative that that person lives at all. Every antinatalist will end up getting their wish. In some scenarios, this means a universe devoid of sad sacks, but again, if you have a stupider metric, you can get a stupider scenario, where all that is deemed necessary is some idea of a capacity to be happy. So I'll quote from Nick Bostrom's book here. He said, Consider an AI that has hedonism, maximising happiness as its final goal, and converts the universe into a computer used to implement digital minds in states of euphoria. In order to maximise efficiency, the AI omits from the implementation any mental faculties that are not essential for the experience of pleasure. It might confine its simulation to reward circuitry. It is unclear how valuable such a universe would be. Or perhaps the simulated minds are not sentient, because the definition of what happiness is defined as is too narrow, and therefore the calculations that end up being undertaken on the computer are ultimately meaningless, the equivalent of plastering smiley face stickers across the entirety of the known universe. End quote. Note, of course, that even in this simple scenario, we run into some of the same philosophical paradoxes that we ran into in our discussion of immortality in the episode Who Wants to Live Forever. Bernard Williams talks about how it is impossible to imagine a happy immortality because of how part of being human is to crave change and transformation. So for an individual, a happy immortality is an impossibility and there is a contradiction in this idea. If you really think about what infinity means, what immortality means, which people often don't do enough when they invoke infinity, eventually, in infinity, you will have done everything that you can possibly do infinitely many times and still have time to spare. I might enjoy Moonrise Kingdom an awful lot, but I feel like even I would get sick of the film a long time before having seen it infinitely many times. So William says, surely the only way not to go completely insane, from boredom if nothing else, during your immortality, would be to change as a person, in some way, so that you're no longer you. Or even if you are you, you might be some earlier version of you that has forgotten things. Clearly, if I were able to forget ever listening to Kid A or something, I could experience it again for the first time as the person I was when I first fell in love with that album. I wouldn't get tired of it then. I could experience exactly the same happiness on an endless loop. Maybe for a happy immortality, every hundred years your memory could be wiped, or maybe it would gradually fade over time so that you did not remember earlier stretches of your immortality at all. But then the very real question arises of whether that's me being immortal, or just some new consciousness that is not actually me, because it's being continually erased or rewritten like a hard disk, or fading into obscurity over the millennia so that it's like your grandfather's axe, you know, you've replaced the handle, you've replaced the blade, eventually there's nothing left of the original, and you can question whether it's still the same object. And so Williams sees a contradiction. You can be happy, but not truly immortal, or you can be immortal and eventually go mad. Similarly then, our AI, if it had the spirit of Bernard Williams, might sense a contradiction between human and happiness, If it turns the whole world into computer circuitry that is simulating moments of ecstasy on a sheer, unadulterated loop, then is that really humans being happy? No human can be relentlessly, endlessly happy all of the time. It simply isn't in our natures. It's not what happiness is for or how it functions. Yet maximising happiness in this interpretation requires removing everything else, and in some ways makes the whole thing utterly meaningless. Max Tegmark does deal with some of these issues philosophically in Life 3.0, in terms of specifying that human happiness is going to require some kind of variety in the experiences that we can have for it to make sense, and that's something you'd have to specify. 
So it couldn't just put you on an endless loop of the happiest moment of your life, such that your sort of psychology was always waiting for that one perfect moment and then experiencing it over and over again, uh, without any sort of reference to before or afterwards. Indeed, it's part of this contradiction that Bostrom does persuade himself to worry about as well in superintelligence. Perhaps the conditions for you to be happy are just too complicated to fulfil, as you will find whenever you do try to pursue happiness, it tends to recede from you as you approach it, or to demand more and more from you as you try to capture it. This is, of course, arguably because, you know, sensations like happiness really exist as a motivation to get us to do things, rather than an end state that is supposed to be easy to attain and luxuriate in. If it was, if you didn't always want more, then that's not a great survival instinct for you. It's a poor motivator psychologically to do these things if we can simply be endlessly contented with the same set of circumstances. I should point out that even for the singularity bros who are coming up with this stuff, the dream where AI turns everything into computers endlessly pleasuring themselves is obviously a scenario we are supposed to reject. We are supposed to feel an instinctive revulsion to it. For Bostrom and the others who designed this, this whole thing is a cautionary tale. Look at what happens, they say, when you tell an incredibly complex system to maximise some arbitrary metric, some number, which is only, at best, tangentially aligned with what it is that you really want to happen. Make your own jokes about the maximising GDP approach to totally unfettered capitalism and governance here. Look how terrible it would be if we set our systems up in this way. Aren't we idiots? You can get around this in the silly, extremely exaggerated case by saying, well, you're not really you anymore if your brain is replaced by some endlessly orgasming loop of circuitry. This minimal, non-human brain, only capable of feeling joy, a sort of universe of giggling, simulated idiots, this would run into the contradiction of your happiness because it's no longer you, or human happiness as it's no longer human, and a sufficiently intelligent or wise uh, god AI type creature is going to be able to figure out the difference there. And in fact, there is another faction of the superintelligent AI discourse which says, obviously any AI that is vastly more intelligent than us will be able to understand what we really mean when we ask it for XYZ, and will be able to predict the sort of outcomes we would like and wouldn't do something like this. But I think that does rely rather a lot on a rather sketchy interpretation of the word intelligent, as anyone whose computer has faithfully executed a stupid command will know. But, you know, you can make the argument a bit less silly if you want, you know. Forget the universe of simulated idiots. What if I were able to instruct the AI or the god thing or whatever it is to use its infinite wisdom to somehow simulate me in some kind of virtual world? In the virtual world, whatever happened would be calculated to make me happy without engendering too many contradictions between those things. In other words, my consciousness, whatever that is, can live in happy land now. My headache and various other ailments would instantly vanish. I'd finish this script and be satisfied with the results, rather than the usual sense that I didn't get it quite right. I'd post the episode and thousands of people would flood my inbox with adoring feedback. Or, you know, maybe the AI would decide to take me mentally back in time and I'd get to redo big sections of my life and undo all of the mistakes. Or maybe it would transport me through some glorious, perfect love story. I don't know. Whatever it calculates will make me the happiest. Maybe I'm just back at that concert in Cambridge in 2010 or something, but I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm there subjectively living a life that is as joyous as possible to the best of my personal ability while retaining something of my personality. I should say, though, that depending on who you talk to in the singularity cult, you will find different perspectives on whether this is philosophically desirable or not. Is the ultimate end state where the universe is just relentlessly filled with simulated brains undergoing happy experiences, a good thing? Or is it only bad if the AI messes up and the brains aren't sentient? Or if you find this reality in some other way undesirable or not detailed enough? If instead the digital minds are all living rich, varied and joyful virtual lives, does it matter that we have essentially, and with no lack of vanity and self-regard, converted vast amounts of energy into a digital heaven where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts, or at least less than in the real reality. Basically, is this actually something that would be good if it was done right? If it was done arbitrarily right, would it be a good thing? 
Is our objection to the idea that this is what we should be aiming for, or is it more a case that we're concerned that the AI god thing might be too literal in interpreting our demands and mess it up in some strange way? You may feel a profound philosophical rejection of the idea that this is really the perfect end state of technological civilization, that this is where it's all leading to, inventing ourselves a digital paradise to escape from reality and then disappearing into it. But when it actually comes to explaining why this is wrong and bad, I feel like in a sense you do end up struggling, in the same sense that one always ends up struggling to justify these strangely defined philosophical questions. And indeed, if you look at the kind of people who are into the sort of thing that Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil and other people are writing, you'll find plenty of them who are almost embracing this as a type of religion, transhumanism as a religion, uh, talking about the day when the singularity will come, hoping to be liberated from their bodies and move towards the eternity, uh, the eternal life, the eternal joy that so many religions promised us that we now think we can attain through our technology. And, you know, these people are counting down the days until this will happen, uh, following every single uh, development of machine learning tools in the hope that these are some way correlated to the development of the superintelligent AI that will change the world. And, you know, we've... Uh, another tangent here, of course, but when we talked a long time ago about the psychology of the end in the Teotihuacan specials, there was uh, a note on how our thinking always tends to the millennial, uh, not in the sense of the generation, but in the sense of the millennium, the apocalypse that will wipe out the existing world and will either create something brilliant or something terrible, but that it's necessary to get there by destroying the existing world. And for many techno-utopians, the singularity is exactly like that. You know, it's like the revolution, it's like the rapture, it destroys everything and it creates a new world. And I think that when it comes to explaining why it would be bad for us to escape into this virtual paradise, um, it, you find it tricky from a lot of the sort of different philosophical perspectives that I think kind of dominate in the mainstream. So we have a lot of these sort of mainstream techno-optimist utilitarian philosophies that people are going around living by, whether they call it that or not, and they can't really deal with this question. And they can't really explain why it's not valid to just short-circuit the meaning of life, uh, break the wheel, and bash the happy button in whatever way you can. Part of the problem that does arise with this is that it is a pathologically individual thing to want to do, and the contradictions come when you start to consider what other people might want. So you're sort of centering your own happiness and your own subjective experiences. In some versions of this reality, creating a personal paradise, a sort of unanastic fantasy world if you like, it's a bit icky because it doesn't rely on any connections with others, or anything real. And the realness and the imperfection and the flaws of our connections with others and our attempts to understand them and get them to understand us and the failures and frustrations that come along with that and the uh, deep knowledge that one feels when one reflects on the fact that one will never <laughs> really be able to know anyone uh, to the extent you would like. Our experiences of that are what is truly valuable um, from, from some perspectives. And in this fantasy world where we retreat into these digital heavens, you wonder what becomes of the other and what becomes of other people. For example, maybe I would like to talk to you, but you don't want to talk to me, in which case the simulation would convince me that I am in fact talking to you. Whereas, of course, I would just be talking to an avatar that is very, very like you, but not you. Or alternatively, you could imagine that if you had to change things such that people did want to interact with each other, that requires changing people's personality, doesn't it? So you're impinging on the individual in that case. And I think the, the ruthlessly utilitarian mind 
doesn't really have any room for this kind of thinking, and doesn't really take into account the fact that you're not solving uh, for one function to maximise for one person's happiness, unless you have this incredible solipsism where it truly is a sort of Truman Show universe that's created just for you uh, to be your ideal universe, and everyone else is an actor or an avatar who's not really taking it seriously. And this is the kind of hyper-individualism that you end up with um, where, when you consider how this sort of thing might be instantiated. And I suppose if you wanted, you could always imagine a fantasy paradise where actually the thing that makes it so brilliant is that you are able to connect with people on a much deeper level, where all of the holdups and the fears and misunderstandings and bigotries and hatreds and prejudice and so on that keeps us all apart today can be erased by the light of understanding and comprehension and compassion for each other. And, you know, this is kind of like a, a religious view of heaven, I guess, would have some of these ideas in it as well. Um, but there's also this tension in that between how you maintain your individuality and you maintain this happiness for yourself and what it means to make you as individuals happy or whether it's maximising a sort of collective happiness um, that is hard to imagine. Indeed, so this is a spoiler alert for Greg Bear's Blood Music, which is a book that had a big impact on me. So skip ahead by a couple of minutes if you want to read it, which you should because it is good. Um, th it, this is kind of how it ends. Uh, the book is sort of a classic grey goo nanotechnology fantasy work. An erratic scientist develops these microorganisms called noosites that can become extremely intelligent through their collective ability to communicate with each other with a sort of telepathy. Because they can multiply so quickly, and because they can pool their intelligence in this way, eventually they do start to take over the world, becoming a vast collective intelligence. Our protagonists spend the entire book fleeing from them and trying to fight them, but eventually they are assimilated into this grey goo from nanotechnology, absorbed into a grey goo. And they, they've been fleeing this the whole way, but eventually it catches up to them. You think the book will end there, but it doesn't. Because it turns out the new sites aren't killing people, as they had thought, but instead absorbing them into their own collective intelligence, into their own network. Everyone has the ability and capacity to connect with everyone else in the network, somehow maintaining their original consciousnesses, but enhanced by the ability to understand and connect with each other and the deeper pooled knowledge that they have. And they live now in their own kind of virtual paradise, which is created for them by the new sites, who turn out to be, in their superintelligence, compassionate creatures who wish to create a, a, a world in which humans can live and continue to exist, rather than faceless, assimilating, paperclip maximising optimizers like the AI that we dream we might design would be. And the characters are profoundly happy with this fate, which turns out to be the nearest thing to heaven that might be attained on Earth to them. There is, of course, alternative visions of these paradises, and this is an alternative vision of that, which is less ruthlessly individualistic and more collective. The point is that there are many such visions. Maybe they would differ from person to person, or depending on how we prioritise which aspects of ourselves to change, they would change. But this is the fundamental promise that most of us ascribe to, which kind of lies at the heart of these scenarios, which is taking everything to its logical extremes. You know, we believe through using technology, we believe we can improve the world in some way, don't we? Lots of examples you're probably thinking of right now. So why not apply it to ourselves? Engineer ourselves to be better? Or alternatively, if we don't think we can engineer ourselves to be better, our consciousnesses can inhabit a more favourable world. Clearly, a better world must exist. You can imagine it, right? Even if just by removing some of the most egregious, unconditionally bad things from this one. If it could, and if those sufferings have no meaning, if they're not worth enduring for their own sake, then what's wrong with short-circuiting the meaning of life and running into a world like that? Or is it all just a question of degree for you? I should of course betray some of my own philosophical leanings here, which will differ from some of you listening. Personally, I don't believe that there is a god, nor that there is any purpose to human existence beyond what we can define and decide on our purpose to be. 
I view the whole fact of any of us existing at all as a massive coincidence. And whether that's a remarkable, wondrous coincidence, or a grim and pointless one that entails a lot of unnecessary suffering, probably depends on the kind of day I'm having. At the same time, of course, like most people I imagine, given that we're here now, and we have to make the most of it, I want good things for people. I want people not to suffer, and instead to experience joy, happiness, fulfilment, and so on, primarily to reduce the suffering, but, you know, although I would criticise it as a very reductionist, and potentially often disastrous, depending on the other assumptions that go with it, the utilitarian idea of generally trying to reduce suffering and make sure that those of us who are alive do enjoy it appeals a lot to me. But of course you have to have limits on it, which is where you worry about some of these things. But of course, you know, you look at these positions sometimes and you think that you get a tendency to come into this kind of like there is no alternative mindset where you're not really imagining uh, where you're incapable of imagining different philosophical perspectives properly. And so you have to acknowledge, I have to acknowledge, that this is a very materialistic position and a very philosophically unenlightened one, you might say. Um, but it, I think it is a common enough one that I think a lot of people do share. The point is that if you did have a religious faith or else believed in some different logic or moral system beyond what I've set out, I can see then that why the idea of cheating in this way or not living in accordance with some set of rules would be wrong, because you have rules imposed from the outside, because it's necessary to live in a certain way that doesn't involve shutting yourself off from reality in some kind of virtual paradise. But if your brain has been poisoned by this utilitarianism, and you're approaching things in the way that a good singularity worshipper would, then why would you have a problem with retreating into the digital paradise, just because it's quote-unquote not real? So I hang out with physicists a lot, and when I talk to them, I just know that there's a certain group of them that if they don't dismiss the whole thing as silly and not worth talking about, don't see any problem at all whatsoever with a world where their brains are just uploaded to some kind of fantasy land that makes them happy. After all, all they can cop to valuing is perhaps all we can make an argument to really value in the context of our culture, is our own subjective experience. If I'm genuinely happy and I don't know that the world I'm in is not real, does it matter to me or have I won the game? Have I short-circuited the meaning of life? Again, this notion is filled with contradictions of the Bernard Williams kind on a personal level. I mean, what if being sad is a big part of who you are? It is for me. Am I still myself if I was in happy land and all of the circumstances that would make me depressed, all of the solipsistic introspection that would make anyone write this is engineered away? Would that allow me to overcome that contradiction of being a happy version of myself? But on the other hand, it's a bit of a sliding scale, isn't it? Where would you draw the line personally? What if I simply asked the computer to ensure that I wasn't in a world that made me happy constantly, always entirely without challenges, but that I was just better off in some ways than I am in reality? Or if I could live without some painful knowledge or some negative aspect of myself? Would it then, philosophically speaking, matter that the source of my happiness is illusory if I subjectively experienced it and perceived it as real? A friend of mine gave me an interesting perspective on this specific when I talked to them. Uh, the argument they made was that they would view a lot of the negative aspects to their psyche as learned and undesirable. In other words, the bad things, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the worries, the requirement to compare yourself to others and compete, whatever it might be. These are the things that aren't always a part of you and weren't always a part of you, but have been learned from the outside. And therefore it is valid to reject them particularly if it helps you to lead a happy life. <laughs> On the surface level, that sounds great, but surely the things we've been taught to value are exactly the same. If we really are Skinner's pigeons pecking on buttons to dispense food and treats to satisfy some craving or other in the moment, then isn't the stuff that makes us happy the reward signal something that is also learned from the outside world once you get beyond what's necessary to survive that gives you reward signals? So then wouldn't we just be choosing the things we like about ourselves and keeping them and rejecting the rest? If so, why would it be wrong to take it to the extreme and simply erase or suppress anything negative? 
than you could endure or even revel in virtually any circumstances. Indeed, why couldn't you just unlearn other things like morality that have come to you from the outside that aren't intrinsic? You know, it becomes very kind of, you realise how subjective it is when you try and go down this road too far. Of course, it's long been a dream that this kind of reward signal could be changed for individuals by social conditioning. Of course, you know, when you get past the things that always trigger happiness, like the absence of pain, the things we need to survive, when it comes to the more subtle things towards the top of Maslow's pyramid, maybe we could change those incentives, could change how people perceive those incentives. Changing the incentive structure could change society. Imagine that more people were conditioned to be happy and fulfilled based primarily on how many people they'd helped, on how much they'd contributed to knowledge or whatever, rather than their status in a hierarchy, their social status, their wealth, their ability to access luxury goods, the amount of attention they can get, or whatever, and so on. People might argue that this is a good end goal, because the model of humans that comes in part and is popularised from economists like Adam Smith is so deeply ingrained. You know, the one where we're little, rational, calculating agents that always seek to maximise our own advantage and our own utility which is always something that's known to us and easy to define. They might argue that this is exactly the point. You're supposed to work on eliminating the aspects that make you miserable and maximising the aspects that make you happy or contented. That's the goal. Incidentally, to jump up on another tangent here, uh, <laughs> I, I write this stuff before I record it, and a few hours before I recorded this today, which was months after I wrote it, um, <laughs> I found this uh, tweet of an academic paper where someone had said that they were modelling how people dealt with dating websites. And their idea of how people deal with dating websites is that they solve a system of differential equations uh, with the variables including their height, their partner's height, uh, their income, their partner's income, and what they described as a racial preference term. And you look at these things and you just think, yeah, I wonder how we decided who to love before we discovered the income height racial preference equation it just obviously what humans are doing can easily and endlessly be modeled by people running around solving constant loads of differential equations in their head uh, to come up with a rational expectation of what utility they think they will gain yes because this was about calculating the utility that you gain from meeting someone uh, who you might be interested in and some people genuinely seem to believe, or at least act like they believe, that the world actually operates like this. I mean, the mind kind of boggles a little bit, but at the same time, you sort of look around and see how many people have internalised it, and it's it's a sad thing. But regardless of whether you want to take that approach to humanity or not, surely if you can avoid it, there's no sense to suffering unnecessarily. People would agree with that, regardless of their definition of suffering. No one gains from the fact of that suffering. There's no cosmic debt that you have to pay by experiencing it. If we are all here just by sheer staggering cosmological coincidence with no purpose behind any of it, and the material things are the ones you need to be concerned about, why suffer when you don't need to? When you can, through the miracle of technology, take that suffering away? And is it any different to do that by retreating into a world with no problems than it is by curing any other sort of illness? The cliche here would be to say that I'm someone who has struggled with my own mental health. By anyone's yardstick, that is probably true. But like most people who have been through these experiences, maybe many of you listening to this now, statistically, it's extremely likely, you find yourself caught between addressing a kind of solutionism a sticking plaster to your problems, and trying to deal with the underlying sources of any pain that you have. And indeed questioning to what extent it is valid or important to address what you have that's going on. We have pathologized a great many things, plenty of things that would have been considered within the range of an ordinary set of personality traits now have labels that accrue to them, and we've pathologized unhappiness too. It is now seen as a defect, or explained away as a chemical imbalance in the brain, even though the science behind a lot of this is unclear. And the distinction between natural chemical imbalances, which we could call emotions or personalities, 
and pathological ones, which are now illnesses, even though in many cases they are caused by someone's circumstances rather than any physical change to them, is always going to be somewhat arbitrary. And this is not to deny that people suffer from depression and anxiety, which is horrendous and debilitating, nor that there are no advantages at all to choosing to treat this like an illness, nor that there are cases where it should not be treated as such if this means that people get support that helps them. But there are circumstantial reasons that people often feel this way, and in calling this an illness, you lose out on a lot of that. If your underlying problems are loneliness, insecurity in your job, lack of community, lack of a sense of purpose in your life, unfulfilling work, whatever it might be, you of course have the option to try and use medications or therapies to adjust yourself to these realities. But where do you draw the line and the distinction between adjusting to reality and trying to adjust reality? There's a sort of toxic strain of dealing with these things, which just essentially singles out the sufferer, tells them they're broken in some way, and prescribes something like CBT or antidepressants or whatever it may be to address the symptoms of the problem. In its most toxic form, this becomes the sort of work-prescribed mindfulness or meditation that gets pushed on you now by a variety of institutions. The institution itself doesn't want to deal with any of the factors that make it so difficult to live in, and so you get the sticking plasters instead. More broadly, of course, I mean, you don't want to get too we-live-in-a-society about it, but the fact is that when increasing numbers of people are maladjusted every year in the UK, more and more people are prescribed antidepressants, which I think is now at a record of 17% of adults this year. When you get these increasing numbers, we tend to focus more on trying to treat each individual rather than the systemic issues that might be fraying people. Books like The Happiness Industry and Manufacturing Happy Citizens both deal with this in far more detail and far more effectively than I can here. Even in centering happiness as a concept, which is, after all, something personal, something fleeting and something that you often experience as an individual, there's a whole bunch of philosophical choices being made. You're saying that the purpose and the worthiness of it is not a service to community or to others or pursuing knowledge or anything that you want to say or living in accordance with nature, as the Stoics might say, or simply using your talents as best you can to benefit others, but actually to be an individual about these things who wants to be happy personally. When this isn't centred, how would our decisions change and how would our priorities change? So we're talking about the, the dichotomy here between you know adjusting to reality and adjusting reality and whether some of the things that you do are a sticking plaster on the underlying problems which you need to address. But in the broader topic that we're dealing with, which is this short-circuiting the meaning of life, the broader problem that we're looking to address is the problems that arise from being alive, which are multitudinous. And we're talking about a sticking plaster that is arbitrarily good, that is arbitrarily capable of getting rid of those problems and erasing those problems. Beyond all of this, the ultimate fulfilment of the idea that we can and should patch the problem rather than somehow addressing it would be tools that actually work. Short-circuiting the meaning of life by giving ourselves the ability to be satisfied in any circumstances, or retreating into more perfect illusions or delusions. And if you come at it with this kind of materialistic philosophy, uh, where there is no underlying purpose, then there is only one option, which is adjusting to reality. You can't adjust to the reality to give humanity a purpose beyond the fact that we've simply happened to incredibly evolve in a universe. Um, if you're not satisfied with what there is, then all you can do is attempt to adjust yourself to the reality of it. And if the most ultimate uh, way in which you can do that is by modifying your own psychology or retreating into a fantasy world where you'd no longer have to ponder these things, then... I think what's strange is that so many of the philosophical structures which seem to guide many of the world's most influential people and which have seeped into the background of our culture, they would find it very difficult to explain why this is bad and why that it's not what we're heading towards. Thank you for listening to this episode of 
physical attraction. I know it's a little bit unusual. There's going to be a second part as well, which is going to be more of the same. So if you didn't enjoy this, then please don't listen to that one and come back when we get on our normal topics again. But if you did enjoy this, and if you have comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to talk about that branch off from this, something massive that you think I've missed, if you think it was just a rambly mess, please get in touch with us, and you know the way to do that. You can get in touch with us on the website at physicspodcast.com. There you will find the contact form that goes through to my email. I try to respond to those emails. You can also get in touch with us if you're a Patreon and have subscribed on the Patreon. There's a direct messaging platform there, which I also try and respond to. Um, So please do that. And thank you to those who have subscribed already and are supporting the show and are therefore probably hearing this earlier than everyone else. There are plenty of early available episodes and special bonus episodes that only the patrons get if you subscribe there. Uh, That's patreon.com slash physical attraction, which is getting a slightly longer plug than usual. You can follow us on Twitter at physicspod. There is a subreddit now as well, uh, which you can get onto, which is reddit.com slash r slash physicspodcast, I think. And there are plenty of other ways to engage with the show, most of which you'll find on the website. Another thing that's up there, by the way, is the episode guide. So if you're new to this show, you can find a full list of all of the episodes we've done, all the interviews that we've done, and that might be useful as a way of navigating through and finding the episodes that you'd most like to listen to. Because most of them, I think, are aiming to be timeless and can be listened to at any time. So if you have that free time to go through the back catalogue, that would be something to do. I think that's all the plugs I'm going to do for today. So until next time then, please do take care.